0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hey there. Just a heads up that this show touches on some heavy lifting feelings territory, including what it's like to feel like that you want to die sometimes. It's not graphic, It's not that kind of show, but there is some swearing. (sighs) This is a memoir show. So it's a show about my experience of trying to figure out some big stuff, but it means that it's only one person's story. One more thing, it's a show about feelings. So it might bring up some feelings, weirdly. If you finish this episode and feel like, hey, I feel kind of funny. You might want to go do something nice for yourself, like me right now. I'm trying to become a person who runs regularly. <laughs> oh, and if you haven't listened from the start, go back to episode zero and start up there. <laughs> the people at the park are looking to be funny.
2: I read that thing the other day about how each day we have 60,000 thoughts, how they're mostly the same thoughts as the day before, like on repeat. I wonder what Sia's 60,000 thoughts are. Her songs are pretty sad. I bet you she understands this feeling. She knows what it's like to be a leaky bucket of sadness. I wonder if she runs too. I wonder how many of Sia and mine thoughts are like the same thoughts. She had that drug addiction, didn't she? Maybe it was alcohol. And I know she's thought about killing herself too. That's when she wrote that track, Breathe Me. So maybe some days we have like 3,000 of the same thoughts. That's kind of nice to think about.
0: Sweetheart. Thinking you're on par with Sia is perhaps a touch too close to fantastical thinking for right now, don't you think? You just got out of a psych ward two weeks ago. Let's not get ahead of ourselves, all right?
2: I thought leaving hospital would be the start of my new life as a well person. So far, I've replaced my smoking addiction with running.
3: It's Thursday, 27th of November, 8 to 7 a.m. Mood is five out of 10. I'm feeling pretty anxious this morning. I did a 5K run just before.
2: I started running religiously while I was in hospital. Each morning they'd shepherd the keen beans out for their walk to the local oval. I'd be out there rain, hail or shine with Sears' album One Thousand Forms of Fear on repeat. The more dismal the weather was, the more strong and further from death it made me feel. On this side of hospital, I thought there'd be something tangibly different. Some change in condition or circumstance. There's certainly been a change in drug regime. There's a few more of those. But the most significant change is really just in my own self vigilance.
3: Um, Monday, 10th of November, mood is 5 out of 10. Uh, I had 5 hours sleep last night, woke up uh, feeling really anxious actually and scared. Tried mindfulness practice tried
0: taking meds,
3: I took half
0: Seroquel. So hospital didn't work and this is your next best answer? Are you sure you're not just a little bit obsessed
2: with yourself? We have 60,000 thoughts each day. Most of them are the same as the day before, like on repeat. And I will try in earnest to track every single one of them. When I was in hospital, I could give myself a break. It was kind of like a terrible holiday. But there were visitors and flowers and phone calls. But on the other side of it, out here on the outside, there's less of things. People send you flowers less, call you less. And in some ways, there's less hope. Life returns to this eerily similar routine. Except I haven't been home in a week because I've been staying with my sister. I can't trust myself to adjust to normal life just yet. I'm worried that maybe I should be going back to hospital again.
3: the 1st of November. Mood is 4 out of 10. I just took some Seroquel because I was feeling really anxious and I'm at my sister's house for my own safety, which is nice.
2: The voice, the one that tells me what a piece of shit I am, it's still there. And it has a lot to say about the fact that I'm now mooching off my sister. Yes.
0: Hello. Hello. Do you want a tea? Yes. Good thing your sister's on holiday so she can babysit you. Black I'm not sure you'll ever be able to hold down a normal job like her. Why aren't you more like Amy? She's got her shit together.
2: It wasn't until this point that I realised that Sometimes the best support from family isn't them calling every day asking, "Are you okay?" It's them letting you tag along while they do their chores for the day. People have different ways they want to be supported, different care languages. I mean, you're not denying it's so. a yeah, so you get my phone. Oh, okay. Why do you have an alarm that says, "Take your pill?" To <laughs> you remind me to take my pills? Yeah. Oh. You might be wondering whether I'm taking medication for all of this. The answer is yes. But then you also might be wondering why I'm not feeling any better. We need to talk about drugs. My relationship with drugs all started when I was 14, when Mum takes me to a nice doctor in a country town one over from ours. I'm not sure if this is because this doctor is particularly good, or because we're from a small country town, and she doesn't want anyone to know that I've been spending most weeknights sobbing in front of my small space heater. Either way, the doctor is nice and she puts me on the pill. They think my hormones might be the cause of all this space heater sobbing. Months go by. Six, perhaps? The space heater crying hasn't stopped. In fact, it's escalated to inexplicable dinner table crying. My family are about as comfortable with this development as I am. They ask me what's wrong, but I don't actually know either. There's a lot of uncomfortable silences and my sodium intake is through the roof now that I'm eating all the tears I keep crying into my evening meals. The nice doctor from the country town concludes that this is probably more than a hormonal issue and she puts me on Prozac. I drive home from one country town to our country town with my mum on a dreary July and a new box of pills in my hand. I think this is it. I must be properly crazy now, like those unhinged girls in the movies. A year later the pills don't seem to have done anything as I seem to just be adding to my repertoire of places to cry. Now I seem to be spending a lot of time in the bathroom at school sobbing and eating the curried sausage sandwiches my mum lovingly prepares for me. I don't know why I didn't choose a better place to cry. A teenage girl's bathroom is quite surely one of the worst options. It's not private, for a start, and there was a lot of nervous peeing. And while the cool girls claimed to never poo at school, I was the one who kept the true score, although I kept it to myself. After a year of Prozac, I decide that summer that they're really more just like placebo and stop taking them cold turkey without any side effects. I was lucky because the side effects can be brutal, as I will later learn. I went like this without the drugs for some time. Years later, I am in California and I'm having terrifying thoughts of my own death. And I get put on a different antidepressant, sleeping pills and benzodiazepines. Mom tells me that one of my uncles got addicted to benzos, so I should steer clear of them. I do, but the one time I do try them, I totally understand why. It's as if anxiety doesn't even exist anymore, not even as a concept, until they wear off, and then everything that scared you is still there just the same. After upping my dose and a few years of this new antidepressant, I decide that, like the Prozac, These antidepressants don't really do anything either, and I'm sick of taking them. Not because anything particularly bad is happening, but because nothing at all is happening and it seems like a waste of money and packaging. I stop taking them and feel... empty? Like I'm an egg that has had all the juice blown out of it and is waiting to be painted for Easter. Getting dressed is like putting on life drag. The days are lost, listless. So I keep taking the pills, because I can't not. Years later, I'm still on those same antidepressants when I'm also prescribed lithium. Lithium is a new class of drug for me, a mood stabiliser and sounds scary and serious, like there must be something properly wrong with me, which at the time I like. Because I'm on lithium, I have to get blood tests and end up in the back room in the local hospital where I take off my shirt and bra and a woman sticks cold patches to my chest to make sure my heart is still working properly. I lie there half naked trying to breathe breathe normally, like the lady asks. But all I can think is that I was wrong when I was younger and put on Prozac. Now, I am proper crazy. For a month, I think this is a good thing. Being proper crazy means you get the proper drugs. And the proper drugs means that they actually work, which... They do. I have the answer to it all, and it comes in the form of two large white capsules filled with a metal that stops my brain from being on fire. This answer lasts about a month until the brain fire comes back online. My dosage is upped, nothing happens. I keep taking the drugs because why not? I'm also on other drugs I don't wanna be taking but can't stop taking, so what does it matter? I am put on another antidepressant, Arapax, and then I can't orgasm. I consult with other people who've taken it and they all seem to have the same problem. I'm sitting in the hospital cafeteria where I come twice a week for therapy now and look around at the hundred or so people and wonder how many of us are chemically castrated. I stop taking the drug immediately. I tell my psychiatrist that I don't like that she didn't tell me that that was a potential side effect. She tells me that I am being paranoid and that my paranoia is a symptom of my disorder. Then I meet a nice psychiatrist who likes my pants and waxes lyrical about philosophy and doesn't seem to care too much for the drugs. I ask him if I can stop taking them and he says, hmm, you could try it. I do so and two weeks later, I am in hospital. I think this is correlation, not causation, but either way, Let's try something new. In hospital, I am put on a new antidepressant and Valium and put back on lithium. I am sedated and put on Seroquel, an antipsychotic that is really just a tranquilizer. It's supposed to make me less anxious, but instead it makes me sleepy and confused, which actually just makes me more anxious, but less able to do anything about it. I can't remember things, so I have to send reminders for everything in my phone. I keep racking up parking fines because I'll set these reminders and then walk up the street to move my car, only to forget what I was walking down the street for and buy a meat pie instead. I consider writing to the council begging for mercy based on the disability caused by these drugs, but I forget to, And so I pay the fines. It is then that my psychiatrist presents me with two drugs. One is lamotrigine. the other, I can't remember the name. She tells me I have two options, and asks me, which one would you like to try? It's really funny to me now, looking back, that it wasn't until this moment that I realised what a crapshoot this whole meds thing is. Years later, I'll work out better where the story of psych drugs gets a little bit hazy. I'll read about how they were developed, often by accident, how their names were changed to antidepressants, antipsychotics, how that started to imply we know how they work a little better than we really do. But for now, I will do none of that. I'll just think that I'm one of those unlucky ones for whom the drugs don't work. That not only is there something wrong with my brain, but that there is something rather uniquely wrong with my brain and no drug can touch it. Drug resistant, treatment resistant, sanity resistant. In an overdue fashion, I finally lose my faith in the drugs. If the drugs don't work for me, it means I must put my faith elsewhere. A few months ago, the diagnosis felt like the answer. Now it feels like some box I'm trapped in. Am I being paranoid, or is my doctor trolling me? You see, it's not just the voice that's affecting my thoughts. It's the story that I've been given about myself. It's the diagnosis itself.
3: Tuesday, 9th of December. 3 3.43pm. Um, mood as uh, 2 out of 10. Uh, just been feeling really scared and... ...emotionally dysregulated.
2: We have 60,000 thoughts each day. Most of them are the same as the day before. I bet your sister already
0: has 50k in super. You have to work twice as hard as everyone else. People who succeed at life just to
2: keep... ...aren't like going. this. The thing about diagnosis is it can stick in your brain and having a label doesn't just change how other people think about you. It changes how you think about yourself. And I'd started to notice something. You're always going to have this illness. The messages that the mental health profession gave me about myself, sometimes they weren't actually hugely different to the messages the voice gave me.
0: You really need to just lower your expectations of yourself. You're paranoid. You're experiencing emotional dysregulation. to try your cope-ahead
2: strategies. This diagnosis I had, it certainly opened doors for me. But it also changed how I was thinking on this atomic level. A few short months ago, the diagnosis felt like the answer. Clear, omnipotent, a direction, an understanding, a way out... Now it feels more like being awake to The Truman Show, being watched most closely by myself, a kind of thought police of your own brain. Every one of those 60,000 thoughts, I will pick up and roll over and ask of it this one question. Is this the thought of a crazy person?
3: Um... Monday, 10th of November, it's 12 6pm, mood is 5 out of 10. I've been really anxious. I called my mum this morning at 6am to talk to her. I'm still finding it difficult to be positive, but try to take steps in the right direction.
2: It is a paralysing amount of computation to be self-conscious of every single thought. Awake to the scary reality of what each one of those thoughts might mean. And it's an amazing amount of power to give to someone else.
0: I think you're verging verging on on paranoia and paranoia Paranoia is a symptom symptom of your your disorder.
2: disorder. Being told that you are paranoid and honestly not knowing whether you are, but knowing that there is nothing that you can say without digging yourself into a deeper hole. Later, that same doctor will tell me that when I'm feeling anxious, I should wash my hands and wash my worries away. I don't know whether I'm full of shit or she is. It's Monday, 5th
3: of January, 10, 26 p.m. Mood is 6 out of 10. I'm feeling really tired. Um, I just took half a of Seroquel and I'm feeling really drowsy. I don't know if it's the medication or just not
2: sleeping. I'm getting all this treatment from the most progressive advanced hospital in Australia, one of the most developed countries in the world. And I honestly don't know what they have left for me. My doctors don't believe me. I don't believe myself sometimes. The drugs don't work. Literally all I seem to have right now is my own vigilance. Mm. We have 60,000 thoughts each day. Most of them are the same as the day before.
4: Thank
1: Episode. I talk a lot about my experience with psych drugs. I just want to emphasize that it's just that. It's just my experience. But if you'd like to learn more about the science of psych drugs, we've included a number of links in the show notes and on the website. Just search for "No Feeling Is Final" podcast. And if this show brought up some stuff for you that you'd like to talk about, uh, you can call Lifeline. Their number in Australia is 13, 11, 14, and someone is there 24 hours a day. Huh? And maybe you have a thing that you do when you feel kind of funny, a bit weird, I don't know, confused. You might wanna go do that thing, like me. I'm running around the park behind my house. I hate running so much, but I like this bit. Where I get to stop, and now I'm just a person that just went for a run.